Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. My name's Eric. If you don't know me, I'd love to get to know you and answer any questions you might have about the church. Uh, out in the courtyard area, we have a welcome center where we uh, answer questions, help you get connected to the church. Also, welcome our online friends and family. Uh, I'd love to help you get connected as well. Um, just one announcement before we get into our text uh, that we, uh, for, for members of LBC, we're doing what's called a membership reaffirmation. And so we're going to run these classes from now until October the 2nd. Uh, it'll be at 8.30 and 10 on Sunday mornings, and then also a Wednesday night at uh, 6.30 in the cafe. And essentially that's going through, you know what, we have new bylaws, we have a new you know, updated statement of faith, and just walking you through the changes, and also the bylaws uh, ask us to reaffirm uh, the membership. So remember, it's not um, a country club, it's not a secret handshake, um, it's committing to be a part of the family, to be a part of um, taking direction from the leadership that God has placed in our church. Uh, you read Hebrews 13, 17, it says that we're accountable um, for those we oversee. So it's just formalizing that relationship. Uh, so we ask that you would do that. And then if you're like, hey, I want to become a member, um, you can do that on uh, October 16th. We'll have a class. We'll walk through what we believe. This is what we do, why we do it, and all that fun stuff. So uh, make sure you pay attention to that. So Matthew chapter 2. Uh, go ahead and turn there and get ready. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Dear Jesus, we thank you uh, so much just for this text, uh, that it might challenge us, that it might encourage us, that it might give us um, just a sense of peace that as maybe the world falling apart around us and chaos, uh, that we can trust you, that we can obey you, that you are with us. And so it's my deep prayer that you would help us block out any noise, distractions, um, anything challenging or rivaling our affection and our attention and our adoration of you. And I just pray that we would just have a laser focus on who you are and what you've done and what we can see in the text. And so we just pray you would be glorified through this. Uh, we pray for your words and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so we're in Matthew chapter 2. And again, if you haven't been hanging out with us for a while, I encourage you to go back and look through the first uh, Samuel series and see the imagery that's given there and just seeing um, how that really sets up Matthew and then also the promised king series um, because what you're going to see is Matthew is one of the I believe the hardest gospel to understand um, because it has so much unique language and imagery uh, coming to a Jewish audience and you want to see all that God has for us in these texts and so what we're going to do this morning is just kind of walk through and see what is it like to worship in the midst of conflict, uh, I mean, then basically have the ability to be comforted, to have comfort in that scenario. So as we walked through last week, hopefully you saw um, Matthew's making it very obvious. Jesus is a king, and he comes from royal lineage. He is the son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, and he is coming through Mary, and Joseph and Mary are going to raise him, and God has asked them to do that, and they have agreed and so you have kind of your setting the stage. Now what we're going to do is look at the circumstances um, that this birth occurs or comes into. And one of the first things I want you to see is that there is worship just screaming through this text. You look at verse 2 at the end of it, it says that there were these wise men, and they were walking, and they are following a star. And it says they have come to worship him. And then you see Herod saying, oh, okay, 
go find him that I might worship him too, which is a lie. We'll get there later. Verse 10, you look down, it says, and they saw the star and they were rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then verse 11, they fell down and they worshiped him. This is so important. Here's why. Has Jesus done anything? It's not a trick question. No, right? He's a baby. Is this true? He's a baby. He has not done anything. He hasn't spoken words. He's not on a throne. He's not ruling. He has no sword. There's nothing. He's just a baby. And so what you're witnessing is that Jesus is worshipped for who he is, not for what he has done. Think through that distinction. How many times do we look at Jesus and say, I will worship you when the circumstance warrants it? Rather than seeing he is to be worshipped simply for who he is. They come and find him in the form of a baby. They fall down, they worship, and they offer gifts. Not because of any type of work he's done, because he holds the office or the title that he is the Son of God. He is the creator of all things. And so a question for us to to wrestle with this morning is, do I kind of live in this circumstance-driven worship that if God performs, then I will worship? And when God is not favoring me, work's not going well, the marriage isn't going well, the children aren't going well, you know, the economy's not going well, stock market, you come to church and you're apathetic, and you're sad, and you have no reason to sing, no reason to worship. You open this text and you see it does not matter anything going on in your life. You always have a reason to worship because of who Christ is. He is the king. He is the son of God. And what you're going to see all throughout the gospels in Matthew is that there is this tension that the people want to worship Jesus as created in their own image. That's the conflict versus who he actually is. I mean, you got to think, they come to a poor town in a poor area to a mom and dad that are teenagers, carpenter, and they're expecting a king and what they get is a baby. And what do they do? This is, this is the son of God and they worship. And so thinking through that in our own lives is that we would not be circumstance driven in our worship. And if you want to maybe give yourself a quick test, like, I don't know if I necessarily worship things other than Jesus. Here's a litmus test I I try to put through, is think through this. If you were to lose certain things, how would you respond? Meaning, uh, if you think through, oftentimes, people who are empty nesters, um, their children will go on and they will leave, and mom and dad will ask these kinds of questions. I don't even know who I am. Uh, I, I, I give rides, I give orders, I make meals, I go on vacation, I take care of them, they get mad at me, I get mad at them. That's who I am. And then the kids leave and I don't know who I am anymore. There's an identity there. That's, that means you worship that because it makes you feel whole, important, your purpose. Men see this when they lose their job. Identity is shattered. I don't know who I am anymore. 
when their athletic ability or strength or endurance is, is taken away. They're like, I don't know who I am. I'm strong. I'm athletic. Fill in that blank. That identity is through what they're able to do. Um, we see this a lot in how people are reacting with a loss of freedom, a loss of the ability to choose. Now, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I signed up for. I'm, and so all of a sudden when things get taken away, you can tell that there is this love and affection. There's a worship for how it makes them feel, for how it makes them whole. And, and I think what you're, what you're going to see in the text is this constant conflict of if you're getting nothing of what you want, are you still able to worship Jesus because he deserves it, he demands it for who he is? And let me put it another way. If Jesus were to never answer another prayer of yours, ever, ever, never again, he is still worthy of worship. Wrap your head around that. That he answers no prayer, he does no more work, that he is still worthy of worship. Why? Because who he is. You can see this drawn out in the text. You can see by the gifts that were given, um, the mindset of what the wise men knew to be true. Um, catch this, just kind of like side note, is you have people that were waiting for this sign. They see the sign, they see the sign, they follow it, they know Old Testament, right? Savior's coming, Herod hears it. He's like, oh, Old Testament, he's coming. They're taking this serious. And so they're ready with these gifts. And what do they give? They give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Side note, that does not mean there was three wise men. It means there was three gifts. So you can write that down for your Christmas quiz you guys get at the end of the year, right? Three gifts, not three wise men. Well, what does that mean? Gold's what you would give a king. So, so they're acknowledging, who is he? He's a king. He's in charge. He makes the law. He brings justice. He brings order. And there's a reverence that accompanies that title. I mean, think through this, what's going on in England. They have a king now. There, there was a man who once maybe wasn't revered or respected, but now that he holds that title, people treat him differently. True? He's a king. The next one, what do they, give? they give frankincense. What's that? Well, that, that was a fragrance often given to a groom. Given to a groom. Think about this. Jesus is called the groom because the church is called the bride of Christ. They're saying, here's the groom, the one who's going to pay for you. Who's going to, Ephesians 5, protect your holiness, take care of you, die for you, love you, provide for you. And then as you see through that Ephesians 5 model, he, he's going to prepare a place for you. A home in heaven. And when God the Father says it is time, he'll send the Son to come get you to live and be with him forever. He's the groom. And then myrrh, what they would often give at a, a death or burial, making him the redeemer. He's going to take what was dead and make it alive. He's going to purchase it, redeem it, make it worthy, child of wrath, child of God. So they come and worship him in this identity. This is who he is. So the question is, am I in a place where I just worship Christ because he's the creator? He's the king. He's the groom. He's the redeemer. He's the one who knows all things. Or have I made 
my love and affection and worship for him based on circumstances. You know, here, here's just maybe something for you to think about. Our society, we're so choice-driven. We worship the power of choice. I didn't choose this. I didn't want this. And we think that gives us permission to not worship, to be angry, to be bitter. So let me have you think about this. Our choices aren't always the best choices. Think about this. You love your kids, right? Well, you didn't choose for them to be boy, girl, personality, heights, right? Any of those things. But you chose your spouse. And you love your kids way more than you love your spouse. You love the one you didn't choose more than the one that you did choose. You can laugh. It's true, okay? Not saying all of you are like that, but for the majority, it's like we don't always make the best decisions. Not saying your spouse is a bad choice, but we always don't love our decisions. Right? That, 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 that is a lie to think. If I had the choice, then I would. Then I would be more happy. Then I would get it. Then I would get it. It's like, no, no, no. None of that changes that Christ is the king. He's the one who paid for you. And he's to be loved and adored no matter what. And you're going to be placed in this, this moment of conflict where your emotions and desires are not being met. And you're going to be asked to trust Jesus in that moment. You're going to be asked to worship him. You're going to be asked to, to give him your praise and affection. It's what you see all throughout this text. Kids are being murdered and Joseph and Mary are being told, hey, go here and remain until I get you. Remain until I tell you. So they're going. God said, go, I go. God said, be there, I'll be there. They're trusting him in the midst of this chaos. And they're trusting that God will somehow be with them. Notice their circumstances aren't getting better. They're in a, in a crazy, you know, start of the marriage now in a crazy time of death and sorrow. And what you have is these people just trusting the Lord, trusting Christ for who he is, what he said he will do. Now, just think through this. Some of you are like, I'm not, you know, when you think of falling down in worship, like that's powerful, that's passionate. Like, I'm just not built that way. I would have you think of this. When you go around Friday night in our town, there's lots of cheering going on, isn't there? Whether it's the little kids playing soccer or football, someone's cheering because someone kicked it hard, threw it hard, threw it far, caught it, got a gold medal. There's lots of cheering, yes? Okay. And if we can cheer for kids kicking a ball, can't we cheer for Jesus? That's the disconnect, though. When the circumstance has an outcome that we like, we cheer, we're excited, we praise it. And this, well, come to Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus. Wow, stock market's down. Job's not going well. There is this disconnect between our circumstance and our worship. And what this text does is it just holds Christ as an infant. And it says you worship him simply for who he is. I, I mean, sometimes I will hear someone like, yes. I'm like, oh, it's probably a fantasy football update, right? Like, it's a move, right? Just being honest, move past that. And your world could be falling apart, but you can say, you know what? I know Christ. 
And so when you look through these conflicts, um, what are you going to do? You have a choice to obey, be faithful, and worship. Or you can be like Herod. What does Herod do? Herod sees that there's a, a, a coming king, and he's like, I can't lose my kingship. Right? His identity. His worship is in his power and ability. This is why there's stories written about Herod and his paranoia. Anytime someone would try to take his place, he would just have them killed before they could do it. Because if he wasn't a king, then who was he? How would he be remembered? How would he be feared? How would his family have life past him? So he holds this position and he tries to force the hand of God to work through him. Say, no, 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 it could happen like this. I will be the king. I will be the king. He sends out his people and he says, go kill all the children under two years of age because he's trying to control what is happening. So often we do that. God, you're not moving, so I'll do it. I'll make it happen. And then I'll bless you when it happens my way. You think about Joseph and Mary. They didn't sign up for the consequences of this. It's not the the marriage they had in mind. Then God shows up and says, hey, this is going to happen. Okay, okay. And within this text, you're going to see also there's this conflict. They, They don't want a baby king born in a manger from Nazareth, Bethlehem, son of a carpenter. That's not the Jesus they want. And so they're struggling with this Jesus they want, Savior they want, King they want, versus who he actually is. He's the God that tells you sometimes, go to Egypt and stay there. Look at how this is in verse 13. He tells them to leave, right? And then he says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. So you're a teenager with a newborn You don't get to nest. You don't get to prepare a room. You're on the run, fearing death, going to another country. You're like, well, how long are we going to be there? What do I need to pack? What should I take? Do I have a house? Will we be in an inn? Do we have relatives? He says, just go there and wait. See, these are the conflicts. God says, I'm going to ask you to do something hard. I'm going to tell you, just trust me. And I'm not going to tell you what it's going to look like and how it's going to look like, but I just need you to trust me. I have a plan. And so this is what Mary and Joseph do. They're they're going around doing what God is asking them. In the midst of a crazy king tried to kill their child, we bear that same choice. As chaos rains down and things are confusing, we have that choice. Well, I trust the Lord Or I go the route of Herod and try to grab things into my own hands, try to force things to happen. And so that's the conflict we will always find ourselves in, is when God says no, and when God says, hey, you're going to suffer, and hey, this is going to be hard, and I'm going to need you to be faithful to me, and I'm going to need you to love me. I'm not going to give you all the answers. Let's keep walking through this, this text, verse 15. It says, they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had already spoken by the prophet. So what's he doing here? He's moving from 
a conflict, and he's now giving them a comfort. He's telling them, look, out of Egypt I have called my son. What he's doing? He's going, this isn't by accident. God didn't show up and give Jesus to Mary, and all of a sudden he's like, oh no, Herod's going to kill all the children. What do I do? He's saying, I know this looks crazy. I know you're running around. I know you must be scared. How we know you're scared? Go to 22. It says he was afraid. But this is a part of my plan. How does he comfort Joseph and Mary? How, how is the New Testament reader being comforted that this was all a part of God's plan? He quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, where it says, out of Egypt I have called my son. What's that getting at? It's getting back to the Exodus. What happened in Exodus? The people of Israel are in slavery. They're being oppressed. They're being beaten. They're being used. They're, they're labor, essentially. And God tells Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, I'm going to take my firstborn. I'm going to take my son. I'm going to take them out of Egypt. So what's the reminder? As God rescued them from Egypt, he will rescue them again. It's a comfort in Hosea. Remember the Exodus. God saved his people. Remember that. So he's comforting them in Hosea. Because all through the Old Testament, you kind of have this rhythm. Israel sins against God. They don't obey him. God punishes them for their sin, their unbelief, their idolatry, their adultery. And then he, he sneaks in. He brings in this comforting peace. But I will forgive you. I will restore you. I'm going to provide an offering for you, a payment for your sin. And so all through the Old Testament, God's comforting them with this promised Savior. So what's he doing right here in Matthew? Remember the Exodus. God is bringing his son out of Egypt to deliver them in the exact same way, but greater. And this is what we call in Scripture the, the lesser to greater argument. Jesus is the better Abraham. He's the better David. He's the better Moses. He's the better Moses. Moses brings them out into a period of peace. Jesus will bring them into an eternal peace. Moses delivers them from Pharaoh. Jesus delivers you from Satan. He is the greater Moses. In the same way, when you're in, you're in a, a battle and you're angry or you're scared, God's word is that comfort to you. In the same way, we can say, remember Exodus 4. Remember the parting of the Red Sea. That same powerful God is the God who loves you, purchased you, and dwells within you. The word of God is meant to comfort us in that conflict that allows us now to worship him the way we see him being worshiped here. Side note, side note, is Mary worshiped in this text? It would have been a great place to put it if she should have been, wouldn't it? You can write that down and think about it later, okay? She's not. So this is now God. He's comforting them in this chaos, and he starts off with Hosea. Then he moves in now 16 down. I want you to see the comfort that's going to happen through this text, how, how just beautiful God's word is. So now 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. Why? Because he's not getting his way. And he sent and killed the male children in Bethlehem 
and all in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. And he says, this was fulfilled what was spoken to the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping a loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You go read Jeremiah 31, what's happening? Israel's sinning, and God is punishing them. And and it draws them back to Rachel that the mourning of the children, that there is death in their midst. And then when you continue reading on in Jeremiah, it says, wipe away those tears. Take them away. Weep no more. There is a hope. Someone that will come and bring life. There will be a new covenant. I'm going to put my heart in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to wipe away all your sins. A once forgiven payment. So he looks forward to that payment, that future. And he's saying, let the women weep no more. The Savior is here. There is death, but I am giving eternal life. Remember, Jeremiah 31, the new covenant is here. Christ is here. The lamb that he promised Abraham is here. The king that he told David is here. The suffering servant is here. Find great comfort in that Christian. The same is true for us. Right, Emmanuel, God is with you. And God is with you doesn't mean he's going to maybe take away your cancer. He's going to take away your feeling for addiction. That you're not going to fight in your marriage. That you're not going to hate your job. But what it does mean is weep no more. He is with you. You have hope of eternity with him forever. No sin, no shame, no sorrow, no guilt, no anger. He's comforted him through the word of God. And he furthers this with the Micah too, that these locations, these scenes are not by accident. In in verse five, um, when the wise men come, he's saying, hey, the prophecy of Micah 5.2 is being fulfilled. Um, It reads like this is, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth from of old, from the ancient of days. They're saying that scripture is being fulfilled. It's not by accident he's in the town of Bethlehem, which is where David was born, a no-name city, God raising up a king to pay for the sins of the world in a place people won't expect. Again, this is part of the conflict in the text. A baby in Bethlehem from a carpenter in a scandalous marriage? He's saying, yes, trust me. This has been my plan from the beginning. God is not caught off guard. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's leading and directing each step of Mary and Joseph. Saying, you're going to go here, and then you're going to go here, and then you're going to go here. I will be with you. I will protect you. So the the question we kind of have to come to is am I willing to trust God when it makes no earthly sense? Because that's the trust God asks us to place on him. That the world might 
laugh at us and mock us. Just like Joseph and Mary. You have the Savior of the world as your baby? Sure you do. Coming from Galilee, Bethlehem? Oh, sure you do. Sure, it's real convenient. He says, but will you trust me? Will you trust me in the deepest of ways? Even when there's death and there's weeping, will you weep no more and trust me? God offers us comfort through his word. Then there's this this last piece in 23. I want you to catch this. And so you have, okay, two side notes. One, he tells them to go back in 19, right? He says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Those who sought the child's life are dead. No more fear, right? Nothing to fear. Threat's gone. We'll keep reading the text. 21, and he rose and took the child and his mother and went into the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid. Side note, just because the rulers change doesn't mean things get better. That's right in your text. You're like, oh, sweet, new ruler. Nope, just as bad. All that stress and animosity we have, thinking if we just had a different ruler, everything would be better. The Bible says no. No. And so he's afraid. And God again comforts him. He says, being warned, don't go there, go to. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth as was spoken by the prophets. So that's your Isaiah 11.1, 1, the branch, Netzer, seed of David. So he's saying all of this is to comfort you, Christian. God knew what was happening. God planned this. Here, here's another maybe thing of comfort. You know, this used to be a text that they would point to and say, see, this whole Jesus thing, it's made up. That's not a real place. It doesn't exist. Isn't it convenient that you have an imaginary figure in an imaginary city? Well, guess what happens in like 1964? They find a tomb. And they find Nazareth. And they find artifacts. Herod. And they go, oh wow, I guess there was a city called Nazareth around the time of Rome. It must be a real thing. Again, and that's God's comfort that God didn't hide it. It was always there. We're the ones who come up and like, no, 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 we need to change Jesus. We need to change the Bible. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. And, And what God says is simply trust me when it makes no earthly sense to you. I am your God. You are my child. You have been paid for. And so what we see in this passage is the comfort of God's word. He has a plan. He is a king. He loves you. He's with you. You can trust him always. So some questions for us to think about as you walk through this text is why do you worship Jesus? And why is this important? I'm not saying that if God answers a prayer that we don't worship him. Absolutely we worship him. But is the only reason you worship connected to the circumstances around you? Essentially, do you have circumstantial-based worship? 
Or do you at times just, when everything's falling apart, you know what, you know what, I just, I still, I love you and I trust you. You're the king, you're the groom, you're the redeemer, you're the creator, you're all things. I trust you, therefore I sing. I sing, I make a joyful noise. You know, those cheers I give at sporting events and, and plays and, and things for kids, it's even louder for Christ because of who he is. It's an important question to think through is, am I singing because I got a raise? Or am I singing because I get to spend eternity with Jesus? Am I singing because my sins are eternally forgiven? Am I singing because I'm paid for and loved? Am I attesting praise and thankfulness to Jesus for who he is or what he's done? Let's not divorce the two. Next question. Uh, is your worship tied to circumstances and performance, and how can you change that? And again, I would say this is going back to reading your Bible. Who does God say he is? And thank him that he's creator in that passage. He's savior in that passage. He's king. He's moral lawgiver. He's judge. All of those things, practicing the art of thank you for who you are. Three, how does Matthew 2 encourage your faith? Hopefully it encourages your faith that, that no matter how crazy things are, God's with you. He keeps his promise. He can walk you through the chaos. He will not leave you alone. Emmanuel, God with you. He's there. And, it, and, and you have an ability to be thankful and grateful and praise him. And I know that's so counterintuitive when you're losing maybe your freedom or your marriage or your kids. I mean, think of Joseph and Mary wandering around wondering, will this son die? Where are we going? Where will we live? Where will we stay? Well, we're just going to wait on the Lord. We're going to trust him. Thinking through that in your own life. Four, how do you handle chaos? And how can you trust God more in chaotic times? Simply, it's kind of like this question is, when things get crazy, and what you have in this text is there's weeping, mourning, and death. Are you like Herod, where you just hold on tighter, push down harder, and say, I will fix this. I will bend this to my will. I'm going to be king. You know what, God? I have a better plan. I don't need your king. I'm doing just fine. From this text, what you're going to see is no matter how hard you try, you cannot thwart God's plan. It is in our best interest to submit to him and trust him. Didn't work out so great for Herod, did it? No, it didn't. And so who are you in those moments of chaos? Here's something I want you to think about. Just process this for me really quick. We look back in this text and we get to be so encouraged that there are Christians that trust the Lord in hard times, that had to deal with fear and pain and death, evil rulers, injustice. And we get to see their example of trusting on the Lord, remaining until he tells them to move, staying until he says go, going when he says go. And go, wow, God was with them. God trusted God, or they trusted God in those circumstances. 
we now are a part of writing history. And the question is, when people look back, will they see a church, will they see a Christianity that lived in fear, in anger, in jealousy, in backbiting, in fighting, or will they look back and see the same things we see in this text? Christians worshiping the Lord with the craziest of rulers. Worshiping the Lord in the midst of death and disease and conflict. Will they see Christians that said, whatever you want, I love you. I'm going to spend eternity for you. You have an opportunity to be that encouragement for the next generation. That's huge, isn't it? You have that same opportunity and what God's word is showing you is it can be done. Because he's Emmanuel, he's God with you. Through the mourning, through the chaos, through the weeping, through the tears. This is why that Jeremiah 31 is so important. It says, wipe away those tears. There is a hope. My heart is in you. You can get through this with my guidance. It just might not look like you want it to look. It won't be in the timing that you want. It's going to be painful. It's going to be scary. But I'm with you every step of the way, all the way till heaven where you'll be with me forever. That's comforting news, amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we trust you and we praise you. That we can walk through great texts like Matthew and just see your faithfulness over and over and over again. That from the very beginning, you had a plan to redeem your creation, your fallen creation, to purchase us through your son. And we get to look back and see how you did it. And that should encourage us to trust you and love you and give you our affection and adoration and praise in all things. Help us love you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, as we go into a time of communion, you have a very, very uh, tremendous opportunity. You know, as we walk through this text, uh, essentially you see dire circumstances and you see people trusting in the Lord in those circumstances. Um, but I think sometimes we're like Herod. Life presses us. Hard times come and we hold on tighter and we grip harder and we kick harder and we don't trust him. And we get angry and bitter and then we get mad at the Lord for not accomplishing our plan. See, communion's this time where you get to see God already had a plan. And that plan was to send his son Jesus to pay for our sins on the cross. You get these reminders through the symbolism of communion. You get reminded the bread broken, his body broken. The juice, his blood poured out for our sin. That's that reminder. God had a plan. God fulfilled it. He loves you. He's with you. You're forgiven. You don't need to pull things into your own hands. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be angry. You need to trust him. He died for you. So communion's that opportunity. So I'm gonna encourage you to think through, man, where are some areas in my life where I'm, I'm bitter? 
because God's not giving me the things I want and I'm withholding worship because my circumstances don't feel like they warrant that affection and praise and adoration. Or where there's anger or fear and you're just, you want nothing to do with God because you're overwhelmed that it's not going the way you want it to go and maybe he doesn't care and maybe he doesn't love you and it's created apathy and numbness. Here's your opportunity to go to Christ and say, forgive me for that apathy. Forgive me for that numbness. Forgive me for that anger, that self-righteousness, that vengeance that I want for my way and my things because it's not adding up the way I think it should. And in that process, you confess it to the Lord and then you can turn right around and know that he forgave every single sin you confess. He says, I love you. My son paid for you. I'm with you. I'm Emmanuel, God with you. I'm dwelling among you, in you. Take great comfort that knowing he's with you. And at the end of that, we're gonna have a joyous celebration, singing and celebrating the work of Christ, that we're forgiven, redeemed, purchased, that we have a king, that we have a groom who's preparing a place for us, that we have a redeemer who's taking us from death to life. You get to do that. And so after I pray, um, you're going to be able to take the elements on your own. Um, again, I would encourage you to do the bread first and then the juice so that you don't spill the juice when you go for the bread. Uh, it is gluten-free, so you can take that, but you're going to take it in your own time. As you're praying and repenting and celebrating, and then John will come back up and he'll lead us, and it's just a celebration of the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, that he made a way for us to be with him through Christ that we would cherish that and celebrate that. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. It shows us how to trust you, how to love you. It gives us examples of people in, in stress, in fear, in dire circumstances, and how you walk them through each step, how you provide for their needs, that you are faithful and glorious. We get to see Jesus and how he came to do what we could not. I pray that we would celebrate that, be grateful for that, and love you more, and then celebrate you at the end of this communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.